Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv and Tokyo. I'm Theodora Gazi and today I'll be your guest host. I am a lawyer and I hold a PhD in refugee law specializing in vulnerable groups. I have been working in aid projects in Greece for the past five years. I currently work with ActionAid, and before that, I was the Data Protection Officer for the Danish Refugee Council. Today, I will interview Heather Leeson and Paola Geller from the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. Welcome, Heather and Paola. Can you introduce yourselves for our members? Sure. Glad to be here on behalf of the IFRC team. My name is Heather Leeson. I'm Digital Innovation Lead within the Solferino Academy for the International Federation of the Red Cross Red Crescent Societies. We represent and work in a federated network of 1290 national societies around the world. I'm just really glad to be able to share this story with Paula. Thank you, Heather. Uh, I'm Paola. I am the Information Management and Data Science Officer at the team of Geneva in IFRC. I am working with Heather on the Data Playbook and Alert Hub and other initiatives that we have here at IMG. So for folks who aren't familiar with the Red Cross, can you explain to us what the ICRC and the IFRC are and how they got started? You know, we're the Red Cross Red Crescent Movement. So the International Committee for the Red Cross is the ICRC and the International Federation for Red Cross Red Crescent Societies is the IFRC. We are part of the Red Cross Red Crescent movement, and so the ICRC has different responsibilities and tends to work on international humanitarian law. They work in conflict zones, and they are kind of the chief spokespersons, if you will, for for the Red Cross Red Crescent movement as an international organization. And IFRC, in partnership, we work with 192 national societies, 13.7 million volunteers, half a million staff around the world all these different national societies. So we represent them in terms of the secretariat and we work in partnership with ICRC, but our focus is really on disaster response, preparedness, and uh, whether domestic or international. And so uh, that's a really kind of very quick summary. And I hope I got that right, but definitely we can provide some resources later. Sure, there's some video out there that explains a little bit more granularly. So what's the I4C's role in the humanitarian field? And how closely do societies coordinate with each other? You know, this is what uh, privilege Paula and I have, is that we work at the Secretariat and we get to see that collaboration and coordination and how a network works together. So definitely, you know, our responsibility is to work on disaster response and health, migration, climate action, and values-powered inclusion. And when it comes to crisis and disaster, this is one of the things that we're most well-known for. But when it comes to working with national societies, they work in every constituency in the 192 locations around the world. And so if, for example, there's an emergency, um, let's talk about the emergency in Tonga just recently. Paula's team is in coordination. The Asia Pacific office is in coordination with that national society. And in addition to that, there's teams that specifically work on information and data who will react or provide information or, or resources. So, for example, there's an emergency that happened in the Philippines a while ago, and Paula's team 
is working on how they can provide data and informatics for that. And so it's really about what a national society needs and how we can provide surge support. And that's where Paula's team comes into play. Thank you, Heather. That was crystal clear. So you're connected with the Solferino Academy. What's this academy and uh, its mission? Sure. So the Solferino Academy is a think-do-tank for the Red Cross Red Crescent Network for the IFRC. We are specifically focused on leadership, innovation, and transformation. And we have programs for senior leaders to consider how they might evolve the leadership. We certainly bake the IFRC's global strategy, the Strategy 2030. We work on innovations like the Data Playbook, which I work with Paula on, and a number of people, 270 people around the world, believe it or not, many national societies and folks. And so we are there to ask strong questions, to force debate, to convene audiences across those different things, different topics around innovation and leadership and, and transformation. And so in a lot of ways, I get an opportunity to work across the different departments. So the people who were involved in the playbook like Paula, they work in completely different groups across different national societies. So we're able to convene them to work on these kind of rapid sprint things, whether it be a Futures Fellow Program, which we ran this year, or a Limitless Program, which was last year, which, which we ran to help 500 young people talk about the innovations they want to do. It's amazing how many people out there want to collaborate a little bit differently. And so we had this fortuitous opportunity to do that. But we're also very interested in having a, a real debate around what is the future of technology? Is there something that we're not doing? And I think there's a, there's a large digital and data divide. And so while we can talk about the benefits of emerging tech, which I think is fantastic, I think we also need to talk about the disparities. And so Solferino's written quite a few articles about that. And we work in partnership with the digital transformation team and people who are also trying to tell that story and kind of work on the transformation within the organization. Are there any upcoming events that you'd like to give a shout out about before we talk about your work in more detail? I mean, we're going to launch the data playbook soon. And so there will be some activities around that. There's a big general assembly for the IFRC this year. So the secretariat's really heavily involved in all the different kind of policy and, and governance activities that need to happen. That doesn't mean that we're not all involved in little events here and there, whether it be um, the Global Development Forum. Uh, last year, we were involved in NetHope. So we don't really have any specific events. Um, maybe Paula and her team are presenting at something that I don't know about. But generally, there's just a few things coming up. So, you both mentioned that you work on IFRC's data playbook. Will you tell us more about this project? For starters, why did you name it Playbook? Who is it addressed to and who can benefit from it? Thanks for the question. And I, I think it's fortuitous that we're on this humanitarian AI podcast because of the following. When I got to the IFRC, people said, oh, well, focus on data science. And I'm like, wait a second. Where are we at as an organization? What's people's journey? And what their journey was, we just want to get better at using data, frankly, Excel, right? And I said, okay, pause, fine. So tell me, where are your training materials? And they said, well, we don't really have any standard training materials. And I said, but you have thousands of people around the world doing COBO and ODK training. Where's their training materials? And so what, what it incepted was, was a couple of things. One, I posited that there's super talented people across the world who might have materials to train for our audience. And let's just put that all together. And so the idea of a playbook is to be able to use your best skills and your best space between teams to be able to create and to be able to explore things. And so there's lots of data training courses out there. There's so many books, articles about what to do, what not to do. 
But what we really need to do is help teams on lower budgets get better at their data skills and kind of build that organizational mental muscle. And so the playbook actually was inspired by Atlassian's team handbook, which is a series of 30 minute to one hour exercises that you could do with low cost, just questions and scenarios and games and designs. And the same thing with um, Nesta has a playbook, a DIY toolkit that was the same kind of model, something that you could write all over. And this is what our national societies wanted. So they answer it, the audience goes everything from the data curious all the way up to the people who are data ready and our data scientists, friends like Paula, right? So how do we help those teams get better at data? And so the first playbook we published in 2018, we made it Creative Commons. We did that with people around the world. There were a couple hundred people around the world, events. We did it with some partners like UNOCHA, the Center for Humanitarian Data. And then we put it on the shelf and we said, okay, let's just keep working on it. And so in the last year or so, we did an upgrade. So we're at version one, which we're going to launch in uh, the end of the quarter, I believe. Uh, we're just working on some design pieces and stuff. And so this was done with 270 people and was guided by editors such as Paula. And we did a new agenda for it, a new kind of plan for it of exercises, games, scenarios, and checklists to help people on the data journey to ask those hard questions in teams, but also to ask the questions that we hadn't done as a network before, which is why the emerging tech module number 10 with Paula and Mahindra did is so exciting because it asks those questions around data science and emerging tech, which is where, where your audience definitely would like to see probably some answers from us. From my own experience as a data protection officer, training staff on personal data is crucial for data protection and safety. When I checked out the beta version of the data playbook you have online, I really liked the interactive training exercises you proposed, um, and a specific one where you distribute apples or other fruit to participants and ask them to imagine the type of data linked with it. So what is your experience on training and why is data literacy so important? So you can't get to the good data science if you don't have quality data. And you can't be a humanitarian if you don't respect and honor communities, like in my, in my humble opinion. And so those two things are part and parcel. If we don't have a shared conversation around what is the data we're doing, collecting, why are we collecting it? why we shouldn't collect it, which is also a beautiful and important conversation. If we don't have a clear ownership discussion, we'll never get to the places we want to be in that kind of richness of quality data, but also data is being collected to be able to make decisions, right? It's being collected to be able to support communities in need, right? We're not here to be a data buffet to take, and take, take, take. That's not our world here. Our world really is to be able to kind of be, be equal in our response, which is why things like the, the piece of fruit exercise created by one of the co-editors of the playbook, uh, Dirk Slater, that particular exercise is one of the most popular ones because it reaches all the audiences, which is what our whole point of the playbook was, is that we wanted to not just be for the people like Paula and I who spent our career in this and your listeners perhaps, but people who are advocates or people who are curious. And we had some amazing people come to workshops who were like, this is the first time I didn't feel like I was being talked down to. We should not be talking down to people who are beautiful humanitarians trying to do their work. What we should be doing is upskilling and lifting people up. And in addition to that, not only that, not only should we be lifting people up, we should also try and find ways to have it stick right? There's so many conversations out there that are being talked at. 
And our, we posit that the, the way that teams learn together might actually mean that they'll be able to call somebody and say, hey, I need some help on this. We were in this workshop together. How did we do that? Or I have some more questions, right? I think the biggest thing about the playbook that makes me really excited again about the collaborators like Paula is that we spent so much time debating what needs to go in there and how do we help our teammates and our national societies and our organizations upskill. And, you know, we had 50 events last year. We're super tired, right? That's 50 events where we sat down and we said, do we understand what the problem set is? Is this even relevant, right? And Paula, there were a few times she's like, that doesn't make any sense. She said it in her own way, but basically she really said, you know, we're in the clouds. We're not, we are, we have to be much more clear. And I think this is the power of teams, right? And so when we're talking about building good software, good products, or talking about good humanitarian work we're doing, we need to have teams learn together so that they're not alone, right? That they always have a place to go. And so that's kind of our positive. What about you, Paula? What's your experience from working with the playbook? Thank you. It was a very valuable experience. As Heather mentioned, our work consisted of a series of sessions where we met to design and discuss the content of the playbook. I think the main challenge we had was that the content needed to be relevant and interesting for people with different data literacy levels. We wanted to talk about frameworks for AI in the humanitarian sector, but also we wanted to bring examples of common data science uh, pipelines for specific use cases of the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. And both of those topics needed to be prepared for a wide spectrum of data enthusiasts in the movement. I think that it was this balancing act that made this experience quite unique. It started as a challenge, but quite rapidly evolved into an interesting collaborative ideation process. Um, another aspect that was very valuable for me was the team we wish we were creating these materials. We were all interested in data science and emerging tech, but we had different backgrounds, so we could see how we had different priorities on what we thought it should be presented or not. But always we were very enthusiastic about trying to uncover what was that intersection that was most useful to display in the module we were doing for the data playbook. I think sharing with each other broadened what we understood by data science and emerging tech in the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. You worked on this playbook with all of us. I posit that it's helped me be better at human-centered design in my field. But for you, as somebody who's a data scientist, how did it help your journey as you think about products and services and the work that you do, but also the other people who have the kind of high-tech, emerging-tech data science mind that we talk to? How do you think it's going to shift their work or might shift their work? So, Paula, answer the question, please. I think it helped me to bear in mind that when we are designing a project, it is our responsibility to decide what is essential and what is not, given our audience constraint time and attention. For example, in the data playbook, we have one exercise that asks team where they are in their data science journey. We ask them about their purpose in starting using data science methods, about the data they have, about the time, staff, and budget resources they have. And we propose them to try to match those specific situations with specific actions to start the data science journey. For example, starting an internship, getting into a research partnership, or doing the data analysis in-house. We know that it is simplifying a lot the situation in which a team might be, but we think it presents the process in an accessible way that they can relate with. The exercise works as an introduction so that they can get motivated to consult further materials without having to start the process consuming all the complexity from the beginning. I think this learning is applicable to other products. 
we as technical persons probably know most of the sources of variability of a concept or problem, and therefore it is our responsibility to prioritize and simplify it in a way that our audience can understand it. If we are able to provide that, then our audience might be able to engage in further conversations with us, helping us develop a more comprehensive product. So, in conclusion, I will say simplify first and then complement. Um, I think this is a good time to talk about uh, your new digital transformation strategy, which was published in March 2021. Heather, can you give us an overview of IFRC's digital strategy looking forward? Thanks so much for the question. The IFRC in Strategy 2030, which was approved by our governing board in 2019, one of the biggest transformations that we said we needed to undergo was digital transformation. So there's a team of us that worked and had actually been working for a long time on how can we have digital be a priority. We put together a digital strategy, which you can find at digital.ifrc.org, which explains that we need to have a transformation that's focused on people, processes, and technology. Now, how we got there was really interesting. So Paula's team, the information management team, was instrumental in showing us that we need to be able to, how we manage information and be able to share it during emergencies is completely essential. So if you go to go.ifrc.org, this is an example of why transformation needs to happen. So the first thing that comes from that strategy is that we had some concrete examples as national societies, but also as a secretariat that shows this is a better way of collaborating. So the strategy itself thinks through the different contexts and needs across different national studies. There's no one size fits all. Every country, every national society, and frankly, in, inside every country, there are different plans to be made. And so there's, there's a posit that there's a couple of stages of transformation that people go through and organizations go through to go to not only um, address the digital divide and the data divide, but also to take ownership, but also the opportunities of emerging tech and data science, right? And so we've underpinned that, but we've also cited the need for partnerships and also the need for mitigating the risks. We're very concerned about digital security. We're very concerned about how we build well and build with the network. And so this idea of like um, making sure that we do the two-pronged effort is critical to it. So not only do we kind of lift up in terms of technical infrastructure, the basic internet connection from all the way from internet connection to having a data science in place, those are different types of journeys, right? And so when it comes to the emerging tech journey about AI, not every national society is going to be involved in it, but we certainly know that some of them are very curious and they need to be able to help shape it. And I think this is what I'm very excited about with what Paula's doing, but also that whole team, whether it be with Deep or other things, is that they're thinking about how to involve all different types of national societies on that journey so that it's not just something created by moneyed actors, if you will, right? It's more about like asking questions and making sure that you're really serving the kind of use case of it. And I think that's their approach and maybe over to Paula about what does it mean to actually implement it at an operational level around data science? Because I think that's, that's the meat of the discussion. You can talk about the divide around it, but and we can have the playbook as a tool to be able to kind of bridge those conversations. But the harder work is about figuring out how to make it useful and to be able to solve problems for and with decision makers. To complement that point, I would like to mention an initiative we have about collecting data science related projects from the different Red Cross and Red Crescent National Societies. 
its purpose besides having a central place where to refer to tools is really to increase awareness of what national societies are doing on data science to identify which are our common needs and which are the ways in which we are tackling those needs. Because we know that there are solutions from renowned tech companies to some of those needs, but there are the extra requirements that are encoded in solutions designed internally that we think bring a special value, a sharpened understanding of the boundaries, limitations, potential and context, which we think might have implications in the sustainability of the solutions. So I do think it's very nice that we have these examples of national societies creating solutions for the specific need they have and to see how they are solving them. The repositories on GitHub in the IFRC Go account with the name of RCRC Data Science, so quite simple and explicit. I think this repository is also um, quite interesting for the data scientists and general audience of this podcast as it presents a set of examples of humanitarian AI from a field perspective. In some cases there is code, in some cases there is a bit of the history behind the project, in others the methodology is available, so I think the list could be inspiring for this audience. Also, if there are some listeners from uh, from this podcast, from the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement working in data science, well, this is an invitation to help us keep populating that list and an invitation to get in contact with us so that we could keep building this data science network in the movement. Strategies are usually long-term. For 2022, what do you hope to accomplish through this digital transformation strategy? So there is actually a digital transformation group who's in charge of the implementation. So I worked on the strategy team, and then Paula and I both work on efforts to be able to kind of implement different pieces of it, whether it be products or services. So I can go from a kind of innovation angle, if you will, with the playbook itself, we're, again, one of the modules uh, of the 10 modules in it of and of the 120 different types of items in there. The module that pa- Paula and Mahindra created really is to kind of drive up that conversation around what is data science and emerging tech and what do we need to know. And so from my point of view, what my job is before we hand it over to the new owner in-house to be able to do the implementation is to rise up that conversation around supporting that exactly what Paula just said. There are many national societies who are on different AI journeys. Let's shine the light on that and let's have a conversation around their approaches and how they've involved their communities. So from an innovation point of view, that's my job, right? It's to be able to kind of shine the light, show examples, show gaps, but also work on this kind of little mini product, innovation product. For Paula, from an operational point of view, I think she's got a bigger bigger fish to fry, if you will, because if you're not operationally useful uh, for humanitarian response with, with any kind of emerging technology, there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of oversight to make sure they're not. But I think this is where the, the meatier thing for your audience is over to Paula. Yes, thank you, Heather. For example, in relation to the project I was just mentioning, to keep its maintenance in 2022 will be one part of the journey, but another part will be, as mentioned by Heather, to present its value added to the organization now. We know it might have most of its benefit in the medium long term, but we also know we have to show more some of its value from now. In general, I think that having a data science position in the Federation at this stage is still relevant as by one party helps to support and advocate of how data is being collected, stored and made available, but by another part because it already helps to automatize some processes to combine different data sources at a higher speed than before, 
to access new data sources and to see relations in a way that before was not possible. For example, in the organization, there is already some great data that has been carefully collected through the years that we haven't been able to analyze completely because of its volume. So the team remembered that for processing, let's say, 50 records, it will already take them several days or weeks. So when we brought the proposal of analyze all historical data, so much more than those 50 records, they already preferred to try to stop the process and find another approach to the problem, as they felt it was just not feasible, given their experience. Well, I think now is nice that we have this type of position in which we can advocate and say, hey, no, let's reopen that discussion because we have now different techniques and tools that could let us explore that same data in considerably less time. So yes, I think it's this seemingly small things like letting us come back to problems that maybe before we thought we could not handle and now it give us the opportunity to handle them with these new tools. It's one of the values that I think data science can provide to humanitarian organizations. And Paula, which tools are you working on, right? There are specific things. I think you're not only are you thinking about like what, what exists across different national societies, there's specific applications of AI that the Secretariat and national societies are doing. Is that right? Yes. And a specific example will be a project we're doing on automatic extraction and classification of lessons learned in operational reports. So to provide a bit of context here, as IFRC, we support emergencies and we call that operations. And then those operations start, there is some budget allocated, then response activities are implemented, and then kind of luckily for us, reports are written. I don't know if writing those reports is a requirement, but the point is that it is now in our movement culture to go documenting what we are doing. And this, as you and our NLP community can imagine, it's very good news. Summing up, they write the so-called uh, final reports where they say, okay, this was what happened in the operation and this was what we learned and this is the section that we are trying to extract automatically and tag it according to a framework that is relevant for us. So that is one of the examples of what we are doing, extracting those lessons learned and tagging them according to a framework that has around 40 categories. A multi-level problem and then merging those results with a human validation layer and a visualization layer in a system that is accessible to all our national societies the Go platform. So that is an example. Other examples are the damage assessment model done with satellite or street level imagery. That work has been done thinking in the first stage of the response and have been developed both by Netherlands Red Cross and American Red Cross. And our tools that are already being used operationally as for example to respond for the Lebanon explosion. So there are some other interesting applications of humanitarian AI in the movement. I think what Mahindra, your co-editor, has been doing in terms of fundraising data, that's a new way of applying it. So not only just operationally, but how do we use AI in different aspects of our work? I think you might know more about what that looks like, Hala, than me. I could give another set of examples. So Mahindra, who was my co-editor in the realization of the data science and emerging tech module for the data playbook, has an interesting profile. If I remember correctly, he started his career in the academia in Australia and then passed to work with the Australian Red Cross. He and his team started exploring the CRM database of the organization and they found data on the different projects and donors, which allowed them to propose a recommender system so that they could recommend the specific projects to donors that we knew will probably call their attention, redirecting in that way better our campaign efforts. So that is an interesting example of the area of national society development. So no, not necessarily only on response. 
Another example will be British Red Cross. The team created a COVID-19 vulnerability index and a capacity index, which they aggregated and worked to create a resilience index. Those different indices were translated into map layers defined down to, I think, municipality level. A pretty nice aspect of this project was that it was done as open source code with a nice side methodology and also a nice and digestible summary. In the repository, we have other examples and ideally that list will keep growing. So, Paula, thanks so much for your answers. Heather, I think we should co-host this uh, podcast. Thank you for helping me also with your questions. Uh, since we're talking about money and finances, this is a good time to mention a project that stands out from uh, the digital transformation strategy, the ECCN program, meaning the Emergency Social Safety Net, which provides cash assistance via debit cards to vulnerable refugees in Turkey. Will you talk to us about this program as part of your digital strategy? I could mention a couple of things. Thank you, Teodora. ESSN is a clear example of how we are operationalizing the digital strategy because it is this cash solution that we have that allows us to do transfers to 1.8 million refugees on a monthly basis. And I think this is a lot because we have the digital maturity in place in the Turkish Red Cross and National Society. It is a great example as it implies not only that we are able to do some key scalable digital process, like for example, that we are able to verify month to month for each household and for each household member that its characteristics haven't changed in a way that makes him or her not anymore eligible for the program, but also as an example of the importance we're giving to data protection while we are doing those flagship programs. And I remember while working on the project, we needed to be very careful of how the data was transmitted and the team really adhered to the principle of sharing just the necessary information. It was a constant precaution that a program of this size should and could have. So thinking about the future, it seems like we are entering a world where AI will play an important role in improving humanitarian operations. However, in my opinion, we are not there yet. Also, the use of new technology involves risks, while sophisticated hacking and data security issues do persist. So, Paula, what are your thoughts on this landscape and how should NGOs approach data security? Well, that is a much discussed question. Thank you. First, I think we need to evaluate where we are on that intersection of humanitarian and AI. And I'm glad we are talking about that. For example, in the data playbook model, we went to the basics. What is data science? Which are its associated concepts? Even if we know the risks about new technologies and we are concerned about them, we need to first be able to talk freely about it, to give us the time to understand what it is, so that then we can put the extra layers of understanding the risks and then understanding what can we do, like how can we mitigate them. But I'm afraid of jumping straight ahead to talking about risks without understanding first what data science and these new technologies are really offering. A second aspect that I think is relevant is to have in our organizations team members that are aware of basic data science concepts, even if they are not making data science type of tasks, because as you mentioned earlier, the organizations might not be there yet. We have them all the time listening to the needs of their teams trying to collaborate with what they can and in general helping their teams to relate their fields of expertise with those quote-unquote new solutions. I think in this way we will be able to do sharper evaluations on which risks these new technologies will imply and to search more proactively and practically for solutions. 
Um, a practical example of the utility of having this type of stuff in the different technical teams in an organization is how to solve the problem of harmonizing and sharing different data sets in a secure way, even within organizations. We know that a lot of value will be gained when we be able to analyze organizational data in an aggregated manner, but frankly, it will be very difficult to arrive there if technical teams stay with the general field or fear of sharing data. Data scientists type of staff could support creating data dictionaries and creating synthetic data so that those conversations can happen in a safe space, arriving to a greater detail in those conversations, having a clearer scope of the potential risks and the possible actions we could do in face of that potential and that risk. I think it is also fair to mention that having a data science in, scientist in a team of technical staff will also help the data scientists to get a deeper understanding of that specific field and understand in a more comprehensive way the risks that data sharing and specific new technologies could imply for that specific field. I think I just want to add a couple of threads and just build on your excellent summary. Really, I, I, feel, <laughs> I feel really excited about that. So first, I think the data playbook has shown us that we can use our movement strength. Um, the Turkish Red Crescent was instrumental in a couple of different activities within the playbook. Taking the lessons they learned from this large project, which data science was incorporated into it and giving it back to the movement. And quite frankly, to anybody who can open up an internet because we're going to make it creative commons for anybody to have access to. So we're trying to share as much as possible about the lessons that we're learning. Not the code or anything like that um, for the Kapuzile cart. I don't believe that code is online. I, I, I don't think so. But the methodology of how to incorporate data science and how to ask those questions around risk, that is definitely in the playbook. So that's, I think, if I'd like to see more and just to build on Paula's point, we need to have more sharing of best practices to get better at that. The second part is, is that as we explore how these emerging technologies can be used in humanitarian response, we need to start asking really serious questions around how are we going to be more inclusive in the design of it? I had this opportunity within Solferino Academy working on a very small pilot with the Cameroon Red Cross and the Nepal Red Cross. And it's a collective intelligence project, which is to look at an AI model coming out of it. And we're working very closely with the local communities, defining the need, defining the audience, defining what they're going to do, giving business requirements. It is completely run by Nepal and Cameroon with our partners, Nesta, and all of that. So I think the model needs to flip in terms of power dynamics when we're creating any kind of AI model. So I think this is where the playbook itself gives an example of share best practices. But then again, you know, how can we share better as a network? And then third, how do we make sure that we always have communities at the center, even if we're building AI software, even if it's harder, right? Even if it's harder, we must absolutely be guided by that. Thank you both. Before we close, I would like to ask our guests to think of a futuristic AI application that you'd love to see exist and describe it for us. So Heather and Paula, what would you love to see? So Paula, what would you love to see? Related with the previous question on data security, I think it would be great to get inspiration from the medical sector as I think they have a similar problem to us. They cannot share data easily between hospitals because it is data that is highly confidential, but they know that to generate models that can learn better, for example, how to classify between cancer or not cancer, all of them will benefit from somehow see each other's patients' data. So they are already using technical methods to tackle this problem. I think it's called federated learning, where they have 
a common model that do not need the data to be centralized in one place, but that just uses the weights of local models run in each hospital to learn to predict that common problem. So I think a futuristic AI application, maybe not so much in the long term as in the short term, will be to try to explore those methods in our sector at an operational level to know how good they work. A futuristic tool that will be interesting also is the existence of a recognized and agreed Unicity generator for natural disasters events for humanitarian personnel and for other key concepts we have in the sector. It sounds like a more people process, but there might be something that could be done from the technology perspective, a generator that allows the centralization needed for allowing Unicity's, but it still offers independence for each organization to have their private data on their instances if they want and also to be able to smartly suggest the same ID to objects that are similarly enough. Your uh, AI futuristic application would actually help with the anonymization of uh, the data, right? Yes, I, I think that in the process of covering those requirements, it will also need to anonymize certain aspects of the data. I think that to have those unique ideas will help us to communicate better, to understand who has what, so that we can more easily and safely share data, diminishing the number of times that we do overlapping data collection exercises and diminishing community survey fatigue and optimizing the limited resources that we have. I think an existing tool that already targets a bit uh, of this problem is Deep. Ewan Ogletorp presented also in this podcast earlier, so our audience might already be familiar with it, but if not, and Deep is a platform that allows humanitarian data analysts to track news articles and different reports according to an analytical framework. It allows to georeference snippets of text so that you can easily retrieve data for a specific place, event, and topic. Besides, it also tries to, from a technical perspective, is the interaction between different agencies so that they can work together instead of doing parallel work. This is, for example, the names of the projects are most of the time public, and the names of the project owners are also public, and you do have a built-in function to contact the owner of the project. So I think that is uh, an example of a tool that is trying from a technical perspective to foster collaboration and in that way helping to optimize resources. So my quick answer for Yajira's question is uh, what futuristic app uh, would I like to see or application of AI would I like to see? We just had almost over two years of COVID response. And one of the things that in Solferino we've done quite a bit of for the Red Cross Red Crescent is convening people. One of the hardest things in the world is to watch humanitarians want to communicate and not be able to communicate at the same equal and inclusive way because of language. So if there was one dream that I had in order for us to be able to operate and learn from one constituency to another is more language work. You know, people like Clear Global are doing fantastic work around that. But if we actually are going to work as a global humanitarian network and really shift that power in that, we really need to kind of equalize and understand that there's lots of people who speak other languages who have a lot of knowledge to not only shape the software, but also to shape response. And if we don't use this technology for language and we keep going down these kind of micro, we need to do the micro applications of it. I know this is a really high end thing and lots of companies are working on it. But to me, it's not moving fast enough. The more that we can share our best practices across languages, the better we'll be at being able to do our job. So whoever figures it out or whatever pack of people, and I hope it's a pack of people who figure it out and do it in an open source way, that to me would be my futuristic because it's future now. We need it now. Sorry to interrupt, but yes, I would love to reinforce this point. 
I agree with Heather that it is very important to be able to have most of the popular applications, for example, Microsoft Teams, with enough language capabilities and functionalities. I would like to highlight how relevant it has been in this time of global pandemic to be able to have automatic transcription and translation of calls. I think it has enabled collaboration and allowed to have better products and services. So yes, I would also like to advocate for that. If we're doing smaller, big global projects, to remember that multiple language capabilities is key. I would say from an operational point of view, what Paula said was fantastic. And then mine is my dream space, right? I think you need a little mix of both, right? I can't say that we could ever say one. And, you know, if we look at what Mahindra is doing with, with fundraising in the Australian Red Cross, that's a beautiful pocket of, wow, how could we learn to use that around the world, right? And so this is where our network comes into play. So we don't know what futuristic AI comes, what could come, but I would say the following if we don't have more people like Paula who are asking that question around how could AI work within our values, who's inside those teams, who understands response, but could but tailor it, we'll be in trouble because then we'll be having software created by people who are maybe not necessarily embedded in the work. And I think that by design, we need to build with, but we also need people who are asking those deep questions and teams that take the risk to say, how can we use AI or how can we not use AI? And I know she's having those education conversations every day. So that's good news. Heather and Paula, before we close, do you have any takeaways from our podcast today? Sure. Just um, thanks for having us. And um, um, before I hand to Paula, I just wanted to say that uh, the only way we're going to get better with humanitarian AI or any kind of data skills is to have a little bit more sharing of best practices. And so I really appreciative of this space to have this chat with you and I learned some new things from Paula so here we go this is you're you're connecting us inside institutions too who knew Paula what about you in terms of takeaways thank you Heather um yes totally there were also bits of the digital strategy that were not clear to me and now I have a better idea so yeah thank you and well, in general, I think it's very important for me to have this type of space, like the NetHope uh, Network and this podcast that somehow aggregates a list of initiatives of what is happening in the sector, because there are so many things happening so quickly that it's very difficult for me to catch up. So I do value a lot this type of space. One more thing that I would like to share is an observation of what has meant to be a data scientist that I ever seen in Geneva, because, well, the practical multi-level classification model was just a 5% of my work in, in the last year. And that was probably the most data science ML-related thing that I was involved in, uh, as it was done in collaboration with an external organization. But yeah, most of my technical work was really related to the to information retrieval and data visualization. Then there was the other component that was also technical, but less practical on identifying what has been done in data science in our movement, identifying which are the needs on data science of my closest team members, exploring potential opportunities for solving those needs and collaborating in learning training exercises like this data playbook. So a mixture of things. And I guess I wanted to share this as a picture of what data science is probably meaning at the moment in our sector. I have had some discussions with persons with a similar profile in the movement and I was left with that same impression. So, so yeah, we do get happy when we are able to dust off our knowledge of machine learning and other data science tools, but we recognize that as a sector, we are still in the process to arrive there. But maybe with our participation in the sector, we, we will be able to, to help speed up that process. 
before you joined uh, Heather, I was actually talking with Brent about the topic that you also mentioned about technology. And I was saying that, unfortunately, I believe that we are not there yet because first of all, we don't have the tools and that's what we're working on right now. So that mm -hmm. in the humanitarian field, we develop the tools. And right. secondly, because our beneficiaries don't have access to technology. Even in Greece, where I'm working in a European country and we are having humanitarian intervention here, that's a much lesser scale compared to other humanitarian interventions. Access to internet is not a given to our beneficiaries. So it's even more difficult to implement this, even if we had all the tools ready. It's one of my biggest fears around, um, and this is this can be in the article that I'm writing, you know, there's kind of four things that I think need to happen. One, we need to get real about internet access and the digital divide if we actually are going to make it equitable for response. Two, the discoverability of existing work. Like we should not be building stuff that's already out there. We should be building on, which is why I think the Center for Humanitarian Data and things like DEEP are so important, right? Three, language. I already, I already went on and on about language. And then four, it's really about like who's designing these right? And I've spent like 11 years of my life right now on all kinds of products and services where sometimes you don't get any time with the community, you know, and, you have, and you're not really building something with a community, right? And you're not seeking to solve the problem that they want to do. And I had this one national society one time say, we're so tired. And they weren't talking about what I was working on. I was there doing a data playbook thing. And so I basically just ran this data playbook exercise and just kind of open it up and say, so what questions do you have? What do we want to talk about? Like, what do you think about this? And they just said, we're so tired of people prototyping on us, right? And it was this moment where I was like, I brought up a conversation about power and data literacy and, you know, because it's about feelings and power and how we work and can I get aid? Like all these basic bare necessities. And, and they were like, you know, we're left out of the conversation. Then they want to prototype on us and then they don't come back. We don't get any feedback. And it's like, you know, it's fundamentally sprained unless we do the work, right? And I think this is why we need to ask the deep questions around who's doing what, which is what Paula is doing, right? And I'm asking the question around how do we, how do we actually have a shared conversation and do a lot more listening? Anyway. And actually, Heather, although that uh, when I was uh, writing the article about big data and the humanitarian mm -hmm. interventions, I discovered that there are a lot of open source platforms. However, you need someone like Paula to set them up make them work, to make sure that this data is safe. And mm -hmm. to use big data, you need a person who knows how to handle all this information. You need stuff that are well-trained to collect them. Yep. You need to analyze them better. And then, even if from your part, you've done everything uh, perfectly, then again, you need to think of not being uh, that everyone has been involved, that people who don't have access to technology are also included. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't discriminate by applying AI because you leave out a portion of your beneficiaries who don't have access to technology. And this is a given even in uh, all societies. We are leaving people behind um, on that journey for sure. And it re you really nailed it, Theodora, in terms of power and who, who gets to get involved. I think this is why I'm excited that we're really starting to think about like how we can have people like Paula on teams. And Paula's not the only data scientist in the Federation. There's a couple more now, which is great. But I think the, the model that we've taken in Solferino is that we partner with universities, 
right? And I think this has been a really interesting, and we're not, national societies do as well. Like we need to think about how we partner. We can't hire people, like to be super clear, our salaries are not what data scientists are getting out there, right? In the, in the general field, going to business. And so if we have an economic, um, if there's, you can only go with so far on altruism, right? And so I think the opportunities come with partnering. So for example, we partnered with a couple of organizations that follow our values, that deal with our restrictions. And I think Paula's teams dealt with a, a Norwegian company called Omesto that was thinking through how they work on data. And they had to go through so many, so many legal hoops to get the right to work with us, right? And it's super strict. But we have to partner a little bit differently. And our models for how we do data science work and our models for how we do software has to change. And yeah, open source software, the love my heart, love of my heart, my first love, I telling you. Like not kidding. Like the 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 reality is is that you really need to you need to find new ways to have models so that you can make it sustainable, but also make it a viable option. To me, um, you know, the Go platform is an open source stack, right? Much like HDX. So it's built on an open stack. They still hire developers, but there's no developer community around it. And so having worked on open source projects for decades, it's exciting for me to think about that potential of going from like the model that we have right now of enterprise architects, and then we have staff at house. And believe me, I, I would like for us to have more people who have technical skills, or at least who know how to work with people with technical skills. And that, that those are two things about being a translational leader, plus having the technical chops like Paula does. But the reality is, is that our models need to shift, right? And the models can shift and the opportunity to have open source communities around these you know, whether we build our open source program office, which is kind of my daydream, to be able to kind of sustain it, there is potential there. But we have to have the basic data literacy and the comfort. And this is why spending so much time on the playbook was so important, because we need to upskill our leaders and our decision makers and the people who are not Paula and I to get more comfortable, because we'll never be able to hire or grow if we don't have a lot more buy-in from more, from the organization, that means having a shared conversation. So, Heather and Paula, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to a close.